right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in Romans chapter 7, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Romans 7. <clears throat> and we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the opportunity to read it, hold it in our hands, um, to be taught by it, to let it get planted in our hearts and, and to bear fruit in our lives. God, that's, our, that's what we want. Um, there's just so many different kinds of soils of the heart in that parable of the sower, and we want to be the good soil. That's our responsibility is to have it plowed up and, and tilled and ready to receive. And so, God, I pray that you would. I pray that um, you'd plant your word deep in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our march through Romans here, um, the chapters and the verses that are inserted into the text are not in the original. That's added for us, and, and for good reason. We, we wouldn't be able to find our place most of the time. So it's a good thing that we have those. And yet, oftentimes, that's our break. That's when we stop, when actually the thought of the author hasn't stopped. He continues on. Um, and so we can get a little confused sometimes. So keep this in mind. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 are a continuous thought. So although we stopped last week at the end of 6, Seven is the fulfillment of that six or the problem with six. Eight is the solution to seven. So they all go together. Paul is carefully taking the Romans, the believers, um, through an understanding of their faith. And so keep that in mind. He is talking to believers. Um, I think that's always important when you're going to spend some time studying. And I don't just mean devotional time, but studying God's word. You get your pen, you've got your paper, you've got your Bible open, you're ready to study and take notes and learn, maybe dissect a little bit. Always go through your text, read it through a couple times, and find out who are the characters in this text. Who are the people? Who's the author writing to? What's he trying to say? What's he trying to communicate? Not only in this chapter, but in the chapters before and after. What is the context of this? So you can understand. And then you don't have to do deductive Bible study, you're doing an inductive Bible study. You're, you're learning exactly what God wants you to learn right now in this text. You don't have to come up with stuff. And so when we go through this chapter 7, understand it's bookended by 6 and 8, and it's all continuous thought. 6 we left off last week with Paul explaining that, look, he didn't save you to leave you where you are. He didn't save you to let you continue in your sin. God forbid. I don't know how many times he says it, in this whole book, but certainly not, certainly not, certainly not, over and over again. This is not the intent of God's salvation. He saved you so that you can go to heaven for sure, but also there's more. He saved us so that we have the power and the ability to live the life that we couldn't live in the flesh, that we couldn't live on our own without him. So our lives don't have to, we don't have to wait to get to heaven to finally start living a godly life, but we can start now. Immediately, being born again, now, 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 you're starting your new life, you're starting your new, your new mind, your new heart, your new little fingers, everything. Everything's new in Him, you know? He doesn't want us just to wait for the next, I mean, depending on when you get saved, 20 years, and then when you go to heaven, you're supposed to live the way you're supposed to live or enjoy the life you're supposed to live. It's for now. And so six starts off with and starts his thought off with, you were saved, but for a purpose. Not like, what is my purpose in life, but for your sanctification, to be set apart, to be renewed in the mind and in the heart. So you start thinking the way he thinks and acting 
the way he acts and feeling the way he feels about things. He gives us that. That's what being born again is. And so he concludes chapter 6 with, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren? See how the thought just continues? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from, the law, from that law so that she is, is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So Paul brings us and moves us right in um, to this next section here. Um, Peter, is, he's, a, he's a good friend of Paul's, I think. He calls him a, a dear brother. Um, but he has something to write about Paul's writings, which I thought was very um, appropriate for this. It says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, things I've been talking about, be diligent to be found by him, Jesus, in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long sufferings of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. <laughs> I laugh because that's Peter. I read his epistles. They're really good. Kind of hard to understand, but I get them, you know. And so as we read through these things, understand that there's very simple truths here. And Paul isn't complicating them. He's just being very thorough. Okay. Um, you, you notice the green rope everywhere, probably. If you weren't, you weren't looking down. And you need to look down because I don't want you to trip and ruin the whole thing. So there's a rope there. And we're going to use it later on at the end. It's only an object lesson. It's something to remind you of. It's a simple truth. We do this in Sunday school class for kids. Because we have a very simple lesson for them. We want them to remember that lesson. And they'll always remember it from that object lesson. It's just, it's just there now. You know, and you'll have that tonight. And I hope you understand that. Because in chapter 7 is one of the biggest questions that every believer has. One of the biggest struggles every believer has. And it's a very simple answer. And it's a very simple truth that we're going to get to. Paul says, as I read through or. Peter says, as I read through Paul's epistles, some of them are hard to understand. And you've got to break them down a little bit and understand why Paul's being so thorough in these things. Um, Paul came from a place of being a Pharisee. And he was. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. And, and we've, we've gone over this several times, but if you didn't know, he's one of the top 80 Jews in the nation. He was a Jew of Jews. He was above reproach as far as the law was concerned. As far as the old covenant, living up to God's standards in order to have salvation and a relationship with God, Paul excelled above everybody. He was the best. And so he is very intimate. And so this chapter 7 is his cry. It's his brokenness. It's, it's the most intimate chapter that Paul's ever written, ever. It's the saddest but it's also the cry of his heart. It's what broke him. It's what brought him to Jesus. It's what brought him to a place of rage, anger, murder. But then finally, surrender. 
brokenness, healing, usefulness to God. Such an important chapter. Paul tries to, in his first example here, in his first metaphor, that the law has a relationship with this couple, this married couple, as long as they're both alive. As long as they're both alive, they're together. The only way to separate these two is from death. And once death happens, although it's the exact same act, in marriage or outside of marriage, out, you know, free from the death of the husband, even though this woman has found another man in the marriage, even though this woman has found a man after marriage, the act that they're about to commit with one another is the exact same act. The only difference between the two is whether the law is in force or whether the law is not in force. But it's the same thing. Nothing's changed. The law has the same power, same ability, same force as long as they're both alive. But once one dies, he says, she's free. She's free from that law. The law has no dominion over her, has no place in her life, can't accuse her of anything. So Paul is trying to build up to this. Because although in chapter 6 he says, stop sinning and stop acting like an unbeliever, he didn't save you to continue on this walk. I do realize there's a problem, chapter 7. How? How? That's his question. So he gives us this example of this woman and this husband and this relationship with the law. Because the law is the law. All it does is proclaim same moral. I mean, it's not judgmental. It's just, this is it. Do it or don't. But either way, you're on the good side of the law or the wrong side of the law. It's just the law. But once you die, once he dies, you're no longer bound by that law. You're free. So verse 4 is very important. Therefore, because of what I just told you, because of this example, my brethren, believers in Jesus, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That you may be married to another Not to the law anymore, but to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. That's what's happened. You spent a lot of time talking about baptism last week in that chapter 6. How it was like when we, Christ died and we died with him through baptism and came up from that. We, We reckoned ourselves dead. And this is where it breaks down for us in our minds because we aren't on the cross We didn't really die in the water. We're still sitting here alive and breathing in the same condition, it seems, as we were before Christ. Although he said we're a new creation in Christ, sometimes it doesn't feel like that because he literally died. He literally was buried. He literally rose from the dead. We haven't done that yet. But Paul's trying to explain something. What happened at the cross is supernatural. When you become a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have placed yourself on that cross. You have died with Christ. It's not suicide, but that's the best example I can come up with. You have picked a day on the day you were born again to reckon the old man dead. You committed suicide. You nailed him to the cross with Christ. Christ is a substitution atonement. He's the one that died on the cross. It may as well have been me. And on that day of being born again, that person is gone and dead. Paul says in chapter 6, of course that flesh isn't and it follows you around, but it's reckoned dead. He's carrying that thought all the way through to chapter 7. You've also become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Every one of our sins, all of our sins, 
separated us from God. That separation from God demanded a verdict, a judgment against us. We've had it. It says that in John chapter 3. This world is condemned already. We were born into a condemned world. It was like we were born in a prison, in a jail cell, awaiting the death, awaiting the electric chair, awaiting the whatever it is. But we were on death row the moment we were born in this world. Every single human being is born in that condition. When I discover, when I learn, when I accept, when I hear for the first time that this man, Jesus Christ, substitutionally took my place at the electric chair, on the cross, whatever it is you want to use, and I believed on that for my salvation, that was the day I died. That was the day the sentence was enacted. I have no sentence over me anymore. If a man's on death row, he commits suicide in his cell, they don't wait for his sentencing or his actual day of execution, drag the dead body out, put him in the chair and kill him again. He's gone. The law has no... He's out. They just bury him. Please understand this. When you became a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, that old man was dead. There's no sentence over you anymore. The law, although perfect, beautiful, and good, and wonderful, and right, and a perfect example of our God, shows his characteristics, there is nobody to kill. Christ took it. He took you at that moment. You believed on him for salvation. You placed yourself on the cross with him. You reckoned yourself dead. You were baptized. You rose again. It is no longer I that live, but Christ live in me. The only reason we struggle with this is because we haven't been buried yet, really. (laughs) That's our hard spot. Paul is trying to explain to us it's happened. By faith, although it hasn't happened, we know it has happened. That's what faith is. Some of these things that Paul writes are hard to understand. (laughs) Maybe it's just hard for us to believe. Honestly, most of the time, it's just too good to be true, honestly. Just nothing in this world is like this. Nothing in this world works like what he just described. Okay, hold on a minute. You're saying you're going to give me the car, you know. Yeah, take the keys. You can have it. (laughs) Not that stupid. Not that stupid. What happens when I get in, you... Some kind of claws and axe or something, and something I sat on back there, left my imprint on some page, and now I owe, or what, what's happening here? You know, nobody buys it. We can't buy it. We're so on edge and leery. And, and probably rightly so, because we've been burned so many times. No, no, really. The water filtration system for your home, it's absolutely free. No, it's not. I know for a fact you're not going to come put that in my house and leave it there and they're going to walk away and never see you again. I know that's not going to happen. He's describing something here that doesn't make sense to us as far as this world goes. And I understand that. Paul understands that. That's why he takes such a long time explaining such a simple concept because we're so skeptical. You have to consider yourself dead. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, what do you mean when we were in the flesh? We still are. You see what I mean? 
That's not how he sees it. That's not how we're supposed to see it. When we were in the flesh, before we were born again, before we were renewed in the mind, before we had a new heart given to us, before we were had a relationship with Jesus Christ and our eyes were open to the truth, that's what he means by walking in the flesh. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. I think maybe part of the problem is we never grew up Jewish, you know? We never grew up in an Old Testament world where there was no Savior. We grew up automatically into a time period where the law was told, but there was already a solution, you know? I mean, and there was in the Old Testament too, but hadn't died on the cross yet, hadn't happened yet. We live looking back, they lived looking forward. Just a big difference. So when they sinned, they still had to do everything they were supposed to do according to the law. When I, when I punch Sam in the face, you're sitting there, it's not my fault. Um, he gets to punch me back. That's just how it is. I need to expect that. Um, if I maim him and some, so he comes over to help me on my roof and he falls off, I'm responsible for all that. And, and that probably would happen. Um, but if, with all these sins, I would have to literally go get a lamb out of my flock and walk up and take my, you know, and pass the sins onto the lamb, the inspected lamb. They would look at it and make sure, and they would take it up and they would kill it. Okay, I'm covered, you know. And you would do that for every single sin. And so pretty soon you're watching your flock dwindle. I got to quit sinning. You know, there's just real consequences. There was, this hurts. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so you live in this condition where I'm going to be pleasing to God so that I don't lose my flock. That's the law. That's being uh, having a legal relationship with God. I, I, I shouldn't want to sin. I should want to stop sinning because I love God. But what's actually happening most of the time is that I don't want to lose what I've got. It's costing me. He's trying to explain we've moved from this old covenant this relationship through the sacrifice of the animals and the costing you and all that, all the cost has been paid for by my son. There is nothing coming out of your bank account anymore. It's all coming from my son. It came from my son. It's completely paid for. Every one of your sins, it's been laid upon him. There's no cost anymore. Now, it's going to do one of two things for people when they hear that. They're going to be like, oh, well, sweet. <laughs> I mean, I guess I can do whatever I want to then. I mean, it's covered, right? Which is what six was all about. Chapter six was all about that conversation. So should I keep sinning just to make it, you know, I mean, he's got a big bank account. Let's, there's my Lord. He saved me again. You know, it's not costing me anything. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Even though we're dead to the law, even though we're not following the oldness of the letter, we're supposed to walk in the newness of the spirit. He hits on that in another location. Um, my notes are kind of all over the place because I wasn't sure how I was going to teach this, so bear with me. We'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 18. We may stop after 6. Paul writing to the Corinthians saying, And we have such a trust through Christ toward God. We know that. Not that we are... 
sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Our righteousness, our, our goodness, our acceptability is all from the Lord. We understand that. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. He's trying to teach the exact same thing he's teaching in Romans 7, 6, 7, and 8, actually. He's trying to consolidate it in that Second Corinthians letter, pulling that all together. Well, the letter kills. Uh, when I go around teaching the law, all I can do and all the law can do is show you that you're dead. You're a dead man walking. You're a dead woman walking. You are on sea. That's all it can do. Now, we may not like it, but there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem with the law is it's just awfully honest. <laughs> and it's awfully hard to keep. Because you look at the law the first time, and this is the problem with everybody, and this is what the world needs to understand. You look at the law, you can't start at that point. It's already been enacted in your life, your entire life, so you've broken it. You show up at the law, and it's too late. You've already broken the law. It wasn't ironic. It wasn't a coincidence that Moses comes down from the mountain for the first time with the Ten Commandments and finds out, oh, you broke them all. So he smashes them down there when he gets down there. The law was never going to save them. The Ten Commandments are never going to make them a righteous nation. It was never going to do anything but show them that you're not obedient kids, that you don't love me, that you're not following me. That's all I can do is show you. This is who I am. The Ten Commandments is a, it's a blog from God. Here's who I am. You know, It's a, a description of who he is. And we show up with these things and we compare it to ourselves and we say we're not even close to any of those things. We've broken all of those things. It brings us to a place of guilt and shame and the inevitability of death, separation from the Lord. Paul's trying to say, now, when Christ died on the cross and you reckoned your flesh on that cross with him, you reckoned it dead. You were crucified with Christ. You're dead to the law. The law is only working in this world right now for those that are not born again. It's functioning and doing exactly what it's supposed to do right now. Telling them, you are in need of a Savior. You're in need of a Savior. You've basically become a ghost to the law. It can't see you. It can't do anything to you. It's still perfect, but it can't do anything to you because it's already been done to Christ. You were crucified with Christ. Paul's trying to bring that across. Now, Paul feels the need in verse 7 to defend the law because that's the next thought. Stupid law. <laughs> no, 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 no. I hate the law. The law is evil. The law is bad. No, 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 no. It's not. The law is perfect and beautiful and good and a description of God. It's like talking about God's character and saying, I hate God's character. No, it's absolutely great. What I don't like about the law is that I, don't, I, I, I just don't match up. What I, what I don't like about my relationship with Jesus Christ is I'm not like him is the idea. I don't think he's evil. I'm just mad at myself for not being like him. That's why the law is so embarrassing to look at, for lack of a better word. I look at the Ten Commandments, I'm like, hmm. put a blanket over that or something. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. He says, again, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. 
That's a pretty bold statement for Paul to make. If it wasn't for the law of God, I would have never known sin. That's how good he was. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment, commandment holy and just and good. It's perfect. It's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with it at all. I'm the problem. Paul's very theatrical and dramatic when he writes these things because he's trying to bring a point across. And that's, of course, why we have the rope. I'm going to be a little dramatic tonight, okay? We need a little bit of that once in a while. That's his cry. If I hadn't read commandment number 10, I would have never known that I was a sinner. Commandment 10. Any of you make it to commandment 10 before you figured out you were a sinner? I didn't get past one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as your sake. To go on and on through all these, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, and so on. Clear down number 10, thou shalt not covet. Paul goes, oh, oh, you know? But that's what broke him. That's what turned him into a raging maniac. Paul lived his whole life as a little boy, as a teenager, as a young adult, as a man sitting underneath the feet of Gamaliel, studying, trying to figure out, through the law, how do I have this perfect relationship with God? He earnestly desired that. I don't have any doubt about that. He honestly wanted to be as close to God as he possibly could. And he's going through the law, and he says, check, check, check. Then he gets to 10, and he's like, oh, no. And that's what turns him into this killer. So it turns him into someone who's standing at the feet of those and holding the coats of those that are stoning Stephen, this poor innocent kid who just loves the Lord. He said, kill him. He's the rock thrower. He's a Pharisee. They're still here today. There are Christians that do not understand 6, 7, and 8, and they stand on the side of the road and they throw rocks at us and you. And I want you to understand them because our temptation is and our our tendency is to be afraid of them, to think they know more, to think they're above, to think they're better. And you need to have pity and compassion and a heart for them because they do not understand six, seven, and eight. They're in the place of a Pharisee. They're in the place of a legalist. They're in the place of legalism. And their whole life depends upon that. And in their heart, they know they've got the whatever number it is, For Paul, it was 10. Who knows what it is for them? And it's killing them inside that they can't make that right, that they can't live up to that standard. But here's what they can do. They can make sure that everybody else looks worse than them. And so they pick up the rocks and they throw them at you. Do you study King James Version only? Uh, No, I use New King James Version. Really? You know? Have you ever done this kind of sin? Have you ever done that kind of sin? Have you ever done this kind of sin? Yeah, yeah, check, check, check. 
That's all they can do. They're in the middle of seven and they don't know how to get out of seven. They're stuck in seven. They know they're supposed to be different. They know they're supposed to be acting different. They're supposed to be walking different. They're supposed to be, it's all outward. And that's what all nine of the other commandments are. Every one of the other nine are things that we can do outwardly to show, to express. Number 10 is inside. It's in our brain. How do I stop my thoughts? How do I, well, it says pull every thought captive. Okay, I know that verse too. Have you ever? Have you ever pulled that thought captive into the obedience of Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. And then the one that comes right after it, because I tell you what, it's like a machine gun. I got the first bullet. The other 27 landed square. It is hard. It is a place of brokenness. It is a place of a helplessness. And that's what causes Paul to rage. He begins to hate. He begins to kill every one of these Christians. How can you have a smile on your face? I am so much better than you. I am so closer to God than you. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. Why are you joyful? And it drove him crazy. Because they had something that he didn't have. They had grace. They had mercy. They had forgiveness. They understood They were broken. So that's his problem. And what he's trying to explain to these Romans, you don't want to go down this road. I've been down this road. I was fine. But when I read that commandment about covetousness, oh, I coveted, you know. How do I get control of that? How do I stop that? Therefore, the law is holy. The commandment is holy just and good. You can either be angry with number 10, Paul, or Saul at the time, and hate it and resent it, or you can be thankful for it, that it brought you finally to that place where you can now receive what God always intended the law to do, was to bring you, Paul or Saul at the time, to a saving relationship through Jesus Christ. Always, always, always the law was intended to do that. You're going to need me. A born-again believer in Jesus Christ still sins. They do. Every one of you still sins if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, when you get saved, you're still going to sin. I would love to qualify that and say, but not as much, and you'll get better, and that's all true. But that isn't important. That's not the point. The point is, when you get saved, when you get born again, you're dead to the law. The law has no dominion over you. What you do now in the Spirit Reckoning the old man dead, walking in the newness of life, a born-again believer is I walk and I serve God because I love him now, because of what he's done for me. My holiness may not be perfect, but it's more honest. I'm not doing it to lose my flock or doing it to save face with everybody. I'm doing it because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ because I'm married to the one I love. I know your hearts. I have the same heart. I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I want to be just like him. I want to look just like him. I want to act just like him. I want to say the right thing to Sam every time I talk to him. I want to do the right thing as a pastor every time I'm up here. I want to teach the word of God perfectly. I want to ever be wrong. Not because I'm prideful, because I love him. I don't want to ever misrepresent him. But do I? 
What do I do with those moments where I don't? What do I do? That's Paul's question. Verse 13, the law is not to be (laughs) diminished. It's perfect. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I, do, what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing, is, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Circle that, but how? How do I perform this? How do I live this godly life? I understand chapter 6. I understand that I'm not supposed to continue in my sin anymore. I get that. And I understand chapter 7, that it's not automatic, and I don't just get, you know, zapped, and now I'm a holy person. So Paul's question is, how do I do what you clearly explained in chapter 6? How do I do that? That is everybody's question. You are not alone. Every single believer has that question, how? How do I stop? How do I quit? How do I do? How do I not ignore How do I perform what is good? That's what I don't find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that's what I practice. Now, if I do what I do, I'm sorry. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I hate it. See, before you knew the law, before you knew Jesus Christ, you were able to do a lot more sin with a lot more fun. That's just a fact. I, in high school, was, I was dying from sin, but I didn't realize it. For example, when you drink a lot of alcohol, you begin to purge, you begin to throw up, and you begin to hallucinate, and you begin to get dizzy and all that. That's because it's poison in your body, and your body's reacting to the poison, right? So when you describe it that way, well, you've poisoned yourself, and your body's just trying to convulse, and that's why... You're throwing it up. It's trying to purge itself from all the extra that it can to stop that metabolizing of all the alcohol that's going into your system because it's still in the holding tank. You need to get rid of that first. Now we're going to work on this. That's why we black you out so that you just stop and your body just does its best it can. You know, you're not doing anything but try to get rid of this poison. That's not how you think about it. You don't go Friday night into high V or wherever you go and say, pick up a 12 back. I'm going to poison myself tonight. You know, nobody does that. The idea is I'm going to hallucinate, I'm going to get crazy, I'm going to black out maybe, I'm not going to remember, I'm going to have a good time. But what's actually happening is you're dying. Your body is saying you're going to die. And it intervenes. (laughs) You can't walk to the store anymore to get more. It intervenes and stops you from poisoning yourself anymore. I was fine in high school. And then I came to Christ. And I realized what I did was sin, and the things that I was doing was sin, all of them. And now as a Christian, as a born-again believer, I even step into those spheres, those circles are 
or entertain those thoughts or even actually fall into some of those sins or jump and walk into those sins, there's no fun anymore. There's nothing but guilt and shame and regret. I didn't have that before in high school. I lived for the next weekend. But now when I'm done, you're like, oh, why, 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 why? Come on, God, help. What am I doing? What is this happening? You know, I'm probably the only one that has that, but how? This sin, this body that I've reckoned dead sure acts like it's awfully alive in my life. You know, how, how, how? I find then, verse 21, a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. That's what I discover. I walk out the door. I'm going to be super Christian today. I forget. I've got him with me. Law number two, not the law of the spirit, not the walking in the grace, but law number flesh, that crazy, irrational, foolish part of me. It says, you might be a Christian today, and you might not be a Christian today. I understand that law is with me. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Could have just had your quiet time. Oh, oh, so rich. I'm so refreshed. I'm so happy. Get out of my way. Oh, God, you know, <laughs> it's just that fast. Spilled my hot coffee, stupid, you know. Boom. There it is. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin, which is in my members. And there it is. Ready? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not a what. It's a who. It's a who. Paul's cry in verse 24 is the cry he had or the conversation he was having on the road to Damascus. He doesn't say it out loud. Nobody who's a Pharisee of Pharisees walks around saying, I sure wish I could stop sinning. You guys have this kind of problems when you, no, no, no. This is all in here because he's riding, you know, and they're all following him. We're going to kill Christians. But in his brain, he's going, I don't know how to beat this thing. I don't know how to stop this wretched man. I'm a wretched man. I wrote down the word loser. That's all it is. I mean, we don't use the word wretched, you know, very much. I don't think you do anyway. You know, this is a wretched cup of coffee. You don't say that. You know, this is a terrible cup of coffee. But you do say loser. You know, you know, we, we used to, you know, that, that was a thing for a while. I don't know if it still is or not. But that's all it means is I try to walk in obedience to Christ and I lose. And so by definition, I'm a loser. Don't say that about yourself. No, I am. I'm a wretched man. I'm a loser. I lose the fight is the idea. Who is going to deliver me? It isn't the next book. It's not five more steps. It's not seven more steps. It's not a hundred steps to purification. It's who? It's who? And this is where I fall short as a pastor, and I think we all do, is try to explain chapter 8, which we'll get into next week. Because it's mystical. I don't have another word for it. It's magical. We don't use those words in Christianity, but I don't know how else to describe it. 
to us except to explain to you that the more you are with Christ, the less you sin, the more you're attached to the Lord, the more you walk with God, the more you spend time in his word, the more you continue and continue and continue, you get better. I don't know why some sins linger. I don't know why some sins just vanish. I don't know why we battle some and others. I don't even remember anymore. I don't understand any of that. For some people, this goes instantly. For other people, it hangs on almost to the end of their life, if not their entire life. I don't know why. As a Pharisee, I can step back with my rock and say, well, that's because you haven't completely surrendered over to the Lord yet. Well, no, duh, who hasn't? Who hasn't? Who has completely surrendered to the Lord? Even Billy Graham said that the world is yet to see what the world, what God will do with one man whose heart is completely his. And I'm like, I want to be that man. Every one of us wants to be that person. I want to be completely committed to God. I want to be completely his. I, I kneel at the altar. How many men's, uh, you know, uh, conferences did I come up to the altar and kneel and raise my hands in the dark mood, wonderful worship night. God, take my whole life. Let it be consecrated unto thee. And then I come up and I didn't like the breakfast they had at the conference. This would grumbled and complained a little bit. Is he going to snore every night we're here? You know, kind of thing. <sighs> It's like I need to strap an altar to my knee so I can just drop down every once in a while in Walmart and just surrendering. I want you to know that that's, this is the battle. This is normal. Pick up your rope if you can. Every, every aisle has a rope. Just grab it and lift it over the chairs, if you would, so that it doesn't get caught in the chairs. Everybody try to get their hands on a rope if you can. There's one over there. It seems silly. It is. I know it's silly. But it's either stupid and you'll remember it for the rest of your life, or it's really clever and you'll remember it for the rest of your life. But either way, you'll remember it for the rest of your life. Can everybody get their hands on a rope? I've got an extra rope here. But they're all kind of tied together, so it's good if you can get a hold of it. All right. Let me read something to you. And I'll try not to burst into tears like I do. I get so tired of myself. Jeez. Oh, where is it? John 15. You'll know it, but I got to read it to you anyway. And I want you to look at your hand and I want you to see it grasping that. Look at it. Jesus says to the disciples, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the words which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gathered them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. I don't know what, how, abiding in the vine, imagine that's Jesus, you got a hold of him, right? You're abiding, you've decided to make a decision to follow Jesus, and you're connected to Christ. That's how you get better. That's how you get healed. 
That's how sin is eradicated from your life. That's how you plump, well, actually, tiny little grapes that you are in Jesus Christ, plump up and become a beautiful fruit unto Christ is by staying attached to him. The only advice I can give you, the only answer I can give you as we get into chapter 8 is stay as close to Christ as possible. Abide in the vine. If you let go, go ahead and drop it. You cannot expect to grow, to plump up, to have any sort of nutrition coming into your life spiritually. You can't, you can't bear fruit. The only way the Christian bears fruit is from the roots through the vine and into the branches. You let go, you get cut off, you remove yourself, you're not going to grow. I don't know when it starts and when it stops or when this is all over with and how, how holy you're going to be by the time you die. I don't know. I do know this, the only way that you can get better is if you abide in the vine, stay with Jesus. That's the answer. Who will deliver me? Jesus delivers us from this body of death. He's the one that makes us better. He's the one that heals us and brings us closer to him. He's the one that gives us that fruit that we long for. Everybody wants to be the ripe, juicy fruit. We all do. And some of us know better. We're just not that place right now. But if you want to get there, there's only one way to get there. That's to stay attached. Stay attached. That's my encouragement to you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. You know that we love you. I feel Peter's pain. Sitting on the shore and you asking him, do you love me, Peter, more than these? Of course, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Over and over again. You tried to encourage him. When you leave me, when you deny me, would you come back? When you come back to me, would you feed my sheep, Peter? Take care of these people. God, help us to understand that. We're dead to the law. The law is perfect and good and wonderful, but it doesn't have any power over us anymore. As believers in you, we're, we're going to heaven. We are saved. And now the life that we want to live in obedience to you, we know that can only come from spending time with you, from you doing it through us, from you, no longer I that live, but you live in me. That you would come into our hearts and that you would begin to do the things that we can't do of ourselves, that we would walk in the Spirit. It's hard to stop here, Lord. We need chapter 8. We need the answer. So God, I pray that as we go through this week, that maybe we'd read over chapter 8 a couple times, that we'd understand it, that you'd speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide. Help us to have peace, first of all. Help us to know that you love us, even when, even though, that we might stay. We wouldn't hide ourselves. We wouldn't detach ourselves. We wouldn't, to our own harm, to our own detriment, separate ourselves from you, God. Help us to stay as close to you as possible, especially when we lose the fight. We love you, God. Bless these people as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. Now don't trip on your way out.